Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. The focus is on verse 17, but it's helpful to read the context. 1 Timothy verses, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, that's our scripture reading, and our sermon passage uh, is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. We'll be uh, finishing out... Uh, uh, Chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. So again, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 is our scripture reading. And our sermon passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is about to be read to you. And so I call upon you now, as a minister of the word, to give your full attention to God's word. It is... The Lord speaking to you today. 1 Timothy 1, 12-17 I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all of the the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. and The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went the men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that by your spirit, who is the divine author of all scripture, that we would have understanding. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us, that he would give us a humility of mind and a willingness to submit to your word, both as we have heard it read, but now, O Lord, as we hear it preached. We pray that we might worship you during and through the preaching of your word. May you be exalted, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Near the end of our passage this morning, the people of Israel, having had the first man ever to be proclaimed to be their king, they shouted, long live the king. Now, it's not exactly clear in Scripture how long Saul lived after he became king. 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1, at least as the the English Standard Version, the King James, the New King James Versions, and some other English translations have it, says that Saul lived for one year and then became king and then ruled for two years over Israel. Other translations working off of different manuscripts, working off of the Septuagint habit that Saul reigned for 40 years, or perhaps 42 years. Acts chapter 13, verse 21 says, Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. But the structure is just ambiguous enough that Paul, in that passage, could be referring to how long Saul lived instead of how long he reigned. But however long it was, whether it was for a relatively short amount of time or whether it was for 40 years or more, Saul's reign came to an end. It ended when his life ended, when he took his life with his own sword. And the same is true for the other 35-odd kings of Israel and Judah, uh, some who ruled as king for a very short period of time, others for decades. But those reigns, those rules, they always came to an end because the king's life came to an end. Now, to give a modern example, Queen Elizabeth II acceded to the throne of England on February 2nd, 1952, and is now the longest-serving British monarch in history, having served now as queen for 68 years. She's the longest-living monarch who has served for longer than anyone else who is alive today. And to this day, the phrase, long live the queen, it's still chanted by Her Royal Highness's subjects. But not to be too much of a downer, her life too will come to an end. Saul and all of the other kings of Israel and Judah, no matter how often the people of Israel or Judah or the United Kingdom, no matter how often they chanted, long live the king, these people would inevitably, these kings would inevitably come to the end of their kingship because they would come to the end of their lives. But there is a king whose reign shall know no end. I would ask you to consider this thought as we make our way through the sermon today. The cry, long live the king, unconsciously or not, is a cry for the lasting permanence, stability, and government that only King Jesus can provide. Let me say that again. The cry, long live the king, unconsciously or not, is a cry for the lasting permanence, stability, and government that only King Jesus can provide. The sermon, as mostly always, almost always, is divided up into three sections today, three points. The first point, I brought you out. The second point, the hiding heir. 
And the third point, men of valor versus worthless men. So again, first point, I brought you out. The second point, the hiding air. And the third point, men of valor versus worthless men. So let's look at the first section uh, now, I brought you out. Samuel makes it very clear in this opening speech of our passage to the Israelites after he had them assembled at Mitzpah. He made it very clear that they are rejecting the Lord and crying out for a man to rule over them as king. Their demand to have a king like all of the other nations around them meant that they were rejecting Yahweh as their ruler. They were rejecting Yahweh as their defender in order to have a mortal man rule over them and defend them. And when the elders of Israel originally approached Samuel back in chapter 8 to tell him to appoint a king over them, just like all of the other nations around them, Samuel did his best to try to persuade them. He used the most stirring speeches to convince them of the terrible mistake that they were making in making this demand. But the Lord told Samuel in chapter 8, verse 9, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. But despite his warnings, despite all of the powers of his rhetorical persuasion, the Israelite elders told him in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The Israelite people had settled upon a human solution for a problem that that demanded a divine answer. And they would not be dissuaded. They were pinning all of their hopes for justice and for victory in battle against their enemies on an as yet unknown man, but a man nonetheless. But brothers and sisters, we are guilty of the same thing. And we're far more sophisticated and modern about it. But if we're honest with ourselves at all, we constantly fall into the trap of placing our hope for deliverance in human authorities, in human ingenuity, in human solutions to problems. But it was the Lord God of Israel who brought his people out of their enslavement and oppression in Egypt. It was the Lord who dried up the Red Sea and 40 years later the Jordan River so that his people could cross over on dry ground. It was the Lord who not only led his people into battle, but fought their battles for them. It was the Lord who saw to it after the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines that the Ark was safely brought back to Israel. And yet despite all of this and even more, Israel rejected God because they thought they knew better. And their better thinking was that a human king would know better than their divine king how to care for and to rule over them. And Samuel tells them in verse 19, But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your calamities and distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your thousands. Now in our passage today, verse 19 contains the only instance in which Samuel utters the word king. And that is in a quotation from the Israelites' elders' earlier demand that they receive a king. Samuel does not like to refer to any human being, any man, as a king. In this whole episode, he doesn't want to refer to their leader as a king. He's only referred to him as a prince in the past. Samuel seems to regard the title as king as appropriate only for the Lord himself and not for a mere man. Speaking of that mere man, let's go to our second point, the hiding heir. The Lord 
through Samuel's speech to them, reminded his people of how he had delivered them from the hand of Egypt. And now he has to deliver their king from his hiding place. In verse 19, as we've said, it, it says that Samuel has all the people present themselves before Yahweh by their tribes, by their thousands. He's going to begin the process of bringing their new king to them by drawing lots. So they have to be divided up by tribe and clan and family. And all the tribes are separated from one another and brought near, as verse 20 puts it. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now, lots, for, for those of you who may not be aware, some of our, our younger folks may not be aware of this, lots could be sticks with markings, they could be stones with, uh, with symbols, uh, some other kinds of things. They were often thrown into a small area, and then the result uh, was interpreted. And a modern equivalent would be the rolling of dice or the flipping of a coin to determine who wins a game or who gets to go first. And when they had cast lots out of the 12 tribes, Benjamin was chosen. And when they have to choose a, then they have to choose a clan from the tribe of Benjamin. And the clan of the Matrites was chosen, uh, taken by Lot. And this clan was brought before Samuel, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. Now this casting of lots was used in the Old Testament, or that was used in the Old Testament, was technically known as a form of cleromancy, in which the will of God was determined by a seemingly random process. But we, the hearers of this passage, we know something that the people present in Samuel's day did not. That the Lord had already chosen for himself a king. He had already anointed Israel's first king. And so this process to make God's choice public to all Israel, uh, but also, it also did that. It made it public, but it also confirmed to Saul that he was indeed God's chosen king. But apparently Saul was having none of it. He couldn't be found. Verse 22 says that Samuel and the leaders inquired of the Lord again, is there a man still to come? Even in their search for the king in this drawn out process by going tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, God still had to deliver unto them their king. The Lord said in response, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. This was, to put it mildly, an inauspicious start to the monarchy in Israel. Now, on the one hand, it was probably a good thing that Saul wasn't seeking out this position for himself. He hadn't gone about flaunting the fact that he had already been anointed by Samuel, in truth, by the Lord to be king. He wasn't going around strutting his stuff. However, on the other hand, it wasn't necessarily a good sign that the leader of the people had so, that the people had so desperately demanded, the one who was going to go out before them and fight their battles, that this man had to be extracted from the baggage in order to be proclaimed king. Verse 23 says that they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood up among the people, he was taller than any one of the people from his shoulders upward. He might have been hiding among the baggage, but his height was impressive. Now, it is well known that tall men make great leaders. Just think about this for a moment. Jimmy Carter was the last president under six feet tall. He was five feet, nine and a half inches. And look how that went. And as we know, all of those who came after Carter have been towering successes. I'm being facetious, of course. But this is the second time Saul's height has been mentioned in 1 Samuel. And I suspect it's not that the narrator is enchanted with his physical stature, but rather that the narrator is conveying the sensibilities of the people. 
The narrator here is, is communicating to us in a, in a sort of indirect way that the people really like the fact that Saul was tall, that he was big, that he was imposing, that he had a, had a physical presence that commanded their attention and their respect and their awe. And this man surely would be the one who would lead them against their enemies and defeat their enemies. And yet perhaps it's because they place such an importance upon the physical stature of their leader that the physical stature of another man, a Philistine, just a few chapters from now, will prove to be so imposing and so intimidating to God's people. Now Saul was a physically imposing man. He was an impressive specimen. He was the one who would lead Israel, the Israelites into battle and he would vanquish their enemies. But there he had been crouching low, hiding out among the suitcases. But the people were undaunted. In verse 24, Samuel says, Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, to which the people cried out, Long live the king! Samuel's declaration that there was no one like Saul among all the people, it could be taken in a couple of different ways. One not so great, one uh, positive. The people took him to be referring to to Saul's great stature, and in response shouted, Long live the king! They have finally had their king delivered to them. And they don't care that he was in hiding. They don't care that he had to be sought out. He was the heir to the throne. He was Israel's very first monarch. They had gotten their wishes. And he was tall and he was handsome to boot. But he wasn't the hero they thought they needed. However, he was the hero that they in fact deserved. That leads us to our third point, men of valor versus worthless men. Verse 25 says that Samuel told the Israelites about the rights and the duties of kingship. And these were written down in a book and laid up before the Lord, meaning in the sanctuary by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. Now this reemphasizes the hierarchy that we referenced last week, where God is at the top. Samuel, as God's prophet and proclaimer of God's word, is is below God. And and Saul, as king, is below Samuel. The duties and the rights of the king are prescribed and proscribed by God's word. Saul or any other king after him doesn't just get to make it up as he goes along. He's expected to, to submit himself to God's rule. And so in this sense, as one commentator puts it, Israel was under a constitutional monarchy, not an absolute monarchy. Now There most likely would have been great affinity between what Samuel declared to the people and had written down that day at Mitzpah and what God declared through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, though not identical. There's a great affinity, but not complete uh, 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 identicality with it. The passage in Deuteronomy is more concerned with limiting the government of the monarch than with, with setting forth his rights. After Samuel told the people about the rights and the duties of kingship, they were written down and they were laid before the Lord, and Samuel sent everyone home. Verse 26 says, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. God has caused Saul, the man whom he had given, to whom he had given another heart, to be surrounded by these men of valor whose hearts God had touched. And these were, according to one commentator, people prepared to fight under Saul's captaincy to enforce his leadership. These men of valor formed the new circle around Saul as another commentator puts it. 
they in a sense become his new family. He goes back to his hometown Gibeah, but his own family is left unmentioned in this passage. Kish, his father, is not mentioned again until later on in 1 Samuel, and that's in a, in a sort of an indirect passing. Now you may remember a few weeks back uh, when we were uh, in, uh, earlier in uh, 1 Samuel, we mentioned Judges chapter 19 several weeks ago. And Judges 19 comes into play once again here. And that's because verse 27 says, in contrast to the men of valor in verse 26, it says this, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Judges chapter 19 verse 22 says this, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, that is Gibeah, worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now what follows in Judges chapter 19 is a horrific, terrible incident. And again, it took place in this town of Gibeah. And you remember, the rest of Judges is caught up with all of the the consequences, the the aftershocks of this event in Judges 19. Of course, you know, the the man refuses to allow this, this guest, this visitor to go out. But he sends out his own daughter. He sends out the man's concubine. And there are atrocities that take place following that action. Now apparently the same type of worthless fellows as one scholar translated it, worthless rabble, they still inhabited Saul's hometown. And these men, as verse 27 said, they despised him and they refused to bring the tribute to him that was lawfully required. They were required by law to give unto Saul a tribute. He had to establish his monarchy. Now in chapter 11, verse 12, after Saul's first military victory, he's he's been proclaimed to be the king of Israel here. Last week's passage, he was anointed as king of Israel, but it's not until his military victory where he is known, it's recognized, okay, this is the guy. He's the king. And so after that military victory in chapter 11, verse 12, the people call for these men's execution. But Saul stays their hand. He shows them mercy. But these men, these worthless fellows, in contrast to the men of valor, they have, they have hearts that have been left untouched by God. And by despising the leader whom God anointed to be their king, they are despising God himself. It's not so much about the man himself who has been, been anointed to be king. It's more about the fact that God has endowed that man with authority and equipped him to carry out his duties. Saul, as as terrible a king as he became later in his life, he was the one against whom David would not raise his hand to harm. Because as David said, I will not lay a hand upon the Lord's anointed. Now to use a contemporary example, it's similar to the difference between either worshiping or hating the man who is the president on the one hand, and having respect for the office of the president on the other. There's a lot of that going on right now. People worship the, pres- the, the current president. They, they do this with all of them. The previous president, people, people worshipped him. They treated him as, as the Messiah, the second coming. We have a proneness to do that, no matter what our political persuasion is. Or, 
If your political suasion is, is, is the opposite of the one in, uh, in office, you hate him. You can't stand him. You loathe him. You don't want to look at his face on the television, much less hear his voice. When really what ought to be going on is having a respect for the office of the president. Now, in Saul's case, the difference is, in Saul's case, as opposed to our president of the United States, Saul is the divinely appointed, divinely anointed king of God's people and nation, Israel. It is a theocracy. It's altogether different from what we or or any other nation uh, around the world have. More importantly than that, though, Saul originated the human uh, monarchy over God's people. The reality was that that Saul was merely serving as a placeholder until the true king of God's people should appear. And this is why I believe that God the Father made it so that there was a monarchy in Israel in the first place. There would be many other placeholders who would follow after Saul to be king. There would be kings of Israel, kings of Judah... There would be long periods of time where no one served as king over God's people, but all of it, from Saul down through all of the other kings, through exile and occupation, all of it set the stage for the coming of King Jesus. And so the people's cry, long live the king, was in truth an unwitting cry for the coronation of Christ as king. Because he is our forever king. He is the God-man, the only one who is able to save us from our enemies. As 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 says, Christ Jesus is king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be glory, honor and glory forever and ever. He is the king who, though Saul, though Paul rather, was a blasphemer, was a murderer, was insolent, who despised the Lord. He was the king who brought Saul and made him an apostle, who had mercy upon him, despite the fact that Saul acted in great ignorance. And Christ Jesus, King Jesus, has done the same for us, brothers and sisters. He has brought us under his mighty reign. But we are not merely subjects if we believe in him as our Lord and our Savior. We're not merely faceless, nameless, countless subjects to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows us. He went to his death with our names and our faces in his mind. He died for you and for me and for all who believe in him. He was raised from the dead, victorious over death itself, over hell, over Satan. And in so doing, he has set us free from our oppression and our bondage. And all that you need to be free is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of all the earth the King of Heaven, our great High King. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you, dear Lord,
We thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for the way in which he stands in stark contrast, not only to King Saul in the Old Testament, with all of his failings, with all of his foibles, with all of his terrible mistakes and evil decisions. We thank you that he stands in stark contrast to all of the other kings of Israel and all of the other leaders on the face of this earth. Because he is the only true and perfect king. And we, O oh Lord, we know that we serve at his pleasure. We serve at his command. We pray, dear Lord, giving thanks to you, that though we are not merely your subjects, that even though, O oh Lord, you know us and you know us well, we pray that we would gladly and willingly be subject to you. That we would rejoice that you are our king. And that you would cause us by your spirit to walk in obedience to Christ Jesus, our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.